0: And we're back with another episode of Space in 60 with Booster Chad Baker. Hello, hello. And the thruster himself, Andrew Polipchuk. Hello, folks another interesting week in space chad tell us about your moon cubes no it's crazy the chinese
1: uh rover apparently it sees something that they call the mystery hut on the far side of the moon so we'll see two to three months they're gonna continue to drive over and see what it is what do you mean two, there's
2: three? a transformers there's a transformers movie about this
1: did they just watch that or something this is true so what are they what do they think they're gonna find oh they're not sure yet they just think it's you know Probably something from a lunar impact or something that's popping up there. It is pretty interesting, though, look, looking, though, if you see it. I mean, it is. They're going to
2: find Pink Floyd on the
1: other side of the moon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on the dark side?
1: On
2: oh, the dark side of the moon. You got it.
0: So what's been happening in uh, Canadian space lately?
2: Uh, I don't know. More New Zealand space. Peter Beck ate his hat after blending it. That was pretty funny. And their new rocket.
0: No, I, did, I didn't see that. What was that about?
2: He said originally when, when they did the Electron that they wouldn't do a reusable rocket. And so he ate his hat and they're doing a reusable rocket.
0: That's great. I, I think that's where the industry has to go. I mean, if you're not doing that, you're not keeping up and you're eventually going to be obsolete. So I think that's great that they're headed down that path.
2: Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a more basic design in the sense that there's less moving parts on it. So I think um, it'll work.
0: That's really the path that all the, I mean, especially any of the new launching companies are, are headed. I think Astros is headed in that direction. Uh, Rocket Lab, of course, SpaceX. And there's another company called Stoke. I think they're working on having multiple or all aspects being reusable. I have to get them on the show. It'd be great to hear what they're doing.
2: Absolutely. Our friends over at Capella Space, they were at the AWS massive conference in, was it Las Vegas? Vegas. As part of the opening keynote. I mean, that's pretty cool to see our industry being tied to the greater IT industry and uh, seen as a as kind of the new frontier.
0: Yeah, Piam's a great speaker, great storyteller, and I would imagine that that was a a really interesting talk. I wish I could have been there for that one.
2: Yeah, it looked amazing. I mean, just watching the the replays of of the Reinvent conference and the 10 year anniversary, it was it was pretty uh, pretty funny.
0: Yeah, and there are lots of new things popping up recently within the industry. One of them that I think is super exciting today we've got a guest on the show to talk about her path in the new space industry along with space weather uh, which is her chosen path today we have on the show as our guest Ksenia Moskalenko Ksenia welcome
3: hi guys hi thank you for having me
2: Great to have you on the show.
0: Yeah, it's great. We've heard so much about you and your work and all of that your company has been doing. But as you know, in this show, we love to hear about the path to space that all of the people that work in this industry have used to get here. So tell us a, a little bit about what you guys have been doing and what you've been doing specifically.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's actually interesting how I got into space because five years ago, I don't think I've never thought about going into the space industry. I graduated from Suffolk University with a degree in global business and finance. Then I used to work at Procter and Gamble and then the pandemic hit and I realized, wow, I may not be doing what I love the most. How Mission Space originated is that one of my colleagues at the college at the university, his dad is an actual satellite engineer who has been working in the space field industry since 1990, and he told me about this really cool R&D project that was related to space weather, and it still remained an R&D project, and they needed a business team to actually make it from an R&D project into a commercializable scaling business. And that's what we've been trying to do at Mission Space for the past year and a half, and it's been a great journey so far.
0: One of the things that, that I've enjoyed about all of the people that we've met on this show is not only their pathway, but what problems they're they're trying to solve by getting into this industry. Maybe you can tell us about what problems you're trying to solve as a leader of the company.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So because we are working in the domain of space weather, and for me, yes, of course, I heard the weather on Earth, you know, the rains, the thunderstorms, but I never actually thought that there is weather in space and it only took me a year to learn what space weather actually is and space weather is something we should all be really concerned about not too much but at least we should be acquainted with what space weather is and space weather comes from radiation caused by geomagnetic storms solar plasma and coronal mass ejections so it's actually everything that the sun is spitting out and because we're lucky to live on Earth and we're protected by the magnetosphere, we don't really feel the radiation from the sun on an everyday basis. But if you're in space, if you are at the International Space Station, if you want to send any missions to the moon or if you have satellites that are out there on LEO, GEO and NEO, you're very concerned about space weather because space weather happens on a monthly, daily, uh, and yearly basis. And just in the last five years, we've had around 850 million worth of geo-satellites lost due to space weather anomalies. And in terms of risks on a global scale, I think in Quebec in 1989, we had a huge uh, geomagnetic storm that resulted in around... 28 to 30 millions of economic losses, a geomagnetic storm hit a transformer and Canada suffered a massive blackout, um, trains, electricity, Toronto Stock Exchange was shut down for hours. And if back 30 years ago, that was a huge event, if it's gonna hit today, we're gonna be all really <laughs> suffering from the massive effects of a geomagnetic storm.
2: Speaking on behalf of all Canadians, like stock exchange doesn't really matter, electricity not a big deal. But if Tim Hortons, our national coffee chain, does not accept payment and loses power on coffee, that is a catastrophe. Absolutely massive.
0: And Zambonis aren't affected by space weather, right?
2: No, no, they're they're run on propane. So that's all good. Hockey will continue. But I I don't know if hockey will continue without Tim Hortons. That's pretty cool, Xenia. I think what you guys are doing is pretty awesome. And definitely being in the space industry, appreciate the impacts of space weather. I know Clint and I both worked at RapidEye and we often talked about some of these events knocking out the satellites, or at least the satellites having to go into, into safe mode um, as some of these events came around. But I guess this is going to bring a whole, about a whole new level of weathermen, women jokes in terms of predictability.
0: I don't know if other countries have weatherman jokes like we do.
2: I'm <laughs> to go not. there,
0: Andrew. <laughs> I know. I couldn't help it. It's
2: the first place my mind went. That's really neat. So the technology, I mean, is it is, is it outward sensing or is it just reading what's coming in towards the earth? Or how, can you tell us a little bit about how that, that kind of works?
3: Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the technology itself. So we're building this infrastructure. The problem with the current solutions is that, yes, we have those amazing legacy satellites. They've been launched many, many years ago. And those satellites are located really close to the sun. And yes, they can detect, let's say, a huge outburst or coronal mass ejection coming our way, but not every single one of them actually hits the Earth. So they cannot turn back and actually see if it will follow. They cannot actually follow the coronal mass ejection to the Earth. And what we want to have is. An infrastructure set up not only in space but on the ground too so we will be able to send our payloads into the LEO orbit and just this month we booked a spot for our in orbit demo mission so it will actually happen next year (laughs) super excited about that we're going to have our first detectors up on LEO already next year and meanwhile, we're currently building the API software platform itself, because ultimately we're selling the data, we're selling the intelligence and a decision support tool. So industry leaders can actually prepare for those disasters and mitigate the effects. So having a whole system with the assets in space and models on the ground will allow us to bring more value to satellite operators, aviation industry, energy sector, you name it.
1: It's pretty fascinating. So how many sensors do you see in orbit total in your constellation?
3: So in order for us to have a global real-time space, weather now cast system, we will need to have 24 sets of detectors and those detectors will all have interconnection between them. So they will act as a unified system and only then will we be able to cover the sun side and the dark side of the earth and give people actual short-term warnings and not just say, Oh well, in 24 hours there will be a geomagnetic storm that will hit Canada. We will be able to tell precisely in what amount of time, in where geographically, a geomagnetic storm would hit, and then Canada, in return, let's say, this particular transformer will be able to redistribute its voltage for seconds if they know a geomagnetic storm will come.
1: See, so Andrew. I was going much to say, much better
0: than weathermen on Earth, weather <laughs> yes, women and weathermen on
2: Earth. <laughs> yes, weather people. And I was going to say, poor Canada. Canada is very susceptible. Hey.
0: Well, I mean, it ought to be really easy in Canada. Like snow today, and <laughs> <when> you're
2: done. <laughs> it's snow today, and snow today.
0: You know, that's a really interesting concept. I mean, are there, aren't there other government satellites already doing this,
3: though? Uh yes, I think they're doing a new. Lagrange point mission where they're going to send this huge 300 kilogram satellite really close to the sun again, because those are operating beyond the guaranteed operating times and they are expected to fail before that actual replacement will be launched. So, yes, they are working on, let's say, those really close to the sun satellites. They're also working on a couple of LEO missions, but because they're really, you know, like single missions or small kind of missions, nothing is being created to actually do this unified system for space weather effects mitigation. So that's where we're trying to fit.
0: What's the new space difference between the government programs and what you're trying to build? Like if you could help the listeners understand why it's important for a commercial company to approach this versus, versus a government approach. We hear it in Earth Observation all the time, but why in this space?
3: We can do it a hundred times faster and 10 times cheaper. Because in order to assemble this huge satellite by a governmental organization or federal agency, it may take anywhere from three to five years to actually develop and build it, then six months for it to get into orbit. And then you can only get the certain measurements that are really close to the sun. But without those measurements, companies like ours would not be able to exist because we will rely on the data that they currently provide and there are enablers. But because we can design and launch the payload in six months, we have a set of of engineers and solar physicists who are working just on this task 24 seven. And with the resources, with the accessibility to space, we can do it really fast and really cheap. Uh, we can focus just on that and make sure that we provide value in just this small sector without having to focus on the governmental budgets, um, I don't know, missions and staffing and everything else. You can do it uh, autonomously as a small company, really efficiently and with not that many resources.
0: I'd say you were definitely generous on the timeline you gave the government of five-ish years. Like I was studying a program not too long ago and they started developing their requirements for the program almost 13 years in advance of when the launch actually took place. And so when you see these programs finally start to begin with that five to seven year time period, there's likely almost double that where they started developing requirements and getting everyone's input from stakeholders and, and partners from international scope. So yeah, I, I, I totally get that, that faster, cheaper, more efficient, that's, that's all super important.
2: Totally agree, Clint. I, th- I think that uh, that question of what would uh, what could you build ten years from now? I mean, what what does the internet look like from ten years from now? It's a pretty ominous question coming from government agencies when they do RFIs and RFPS. It's uh, I don't even know how to think on those timelines.
0: Yeah, if you think about where we were ten years ago on mobile and today, companies develop with software with a mobile first intense before they they look at desktop how are we going to be on space applications as well what's going to change in that amount of time and you know it's really challenging for for government entities to keep up with the speed at which you're you're developing this system
2: are you guys looking beyond i mean this is again looking out there but do you think about this you know as we talk about lunar missions do you foresee space weather on the moon or or providing forecasts for, for the lunar missions and so forth?
3: That's actually a dream for our technical team, because for them, it's still a scientific R&D project. They, they really wanted to build their satellites at first. That's what we thought we would do, build our satellites, equip them with our payloads, send them to space, 24 satellites. What engineer doesn't want to have that and execute it? And, but of course, when you talk to investors and you have to justify why you have to build your own satellites, that really comes down to economic feasibility. And it's not really feasible to build your satellites if now you can use hosted payload missions and just hop on someone else's satellite. So of course, for them, anything related to the moon is huge. And actually... You would not believe just before the recording of the podcast, I was replying to the inquiry about a lunar space weather payload mission and how what it would take for us to participate in it, because we have some agencies who are really interested in sending those space weather payloads to the moon, because there you don't have the magnetosphere and you're not protected and space weather radiation is much harsher there. And is there a space weather forecast system on the moon right now? Of course not. That's why not a lot of people can actually build something on, again, fast, cheap, and ready to go. So I was just replying on what it would take for us to build a payload uh, and send it to the moon, because that would be huge, and it has never been done before. And if you want to have the Artemis mission, if you want to have those commercial in space stations set up and refueling stations, of course, you will care about space weather. So yes, the, they're really... They're in love with the moon and Mars missions.
1: Yeah, That's going to be fascinating. And nobody wants to live in the Canada and be snowed on all the time with the moon and Mars.
2: <laughs> yes. No, we'll, we'll all be going to the moon because there's no snow there. <laughs>
0: so as part of the prep for this call, we were we were doing some background research, which means we were just Googling, but we were trying to trying to look and see what all the company and you have been up to out there. And we've seen you traveling extensively around the world getting your business set up, meeting with different agencies and different companies where you've been posting on social media. How's that transition been for you? You you said you're new to the industry, but you've already put on some serious miles in in getting to know the industry and solving problems. How's that transition been for you?
3: Yes, that's a tough and good transition and question, I guess. So for the past year, because Mission Space is only a year and a half old, So for the first year, we've been applying to a lot of accelerators and we're trying to get into as many programs as possible and no one wanted us. So we never got into anything. And all of a sudden in the summer, we got responses from different organizations that now want to have us on their next cohort. So we got into Fit for Start, which is the Luxembourg Flagship Accelerator Program. We started working in that one. We established the Luxembourg entity. So now we have two in Latvia and in Luxembourg. And then quickly, all of the other programs really wanted to have us as well. So we got into Surfing Space Camp, Space Founders, uh, created Distraction Lab. And all of those overlapped so much. And a lot of organizations were really concerned and not happy that I was posting, oh, look, I'm here, look, I'm there. And (laughs) just, you know, getting those. Organizations to be aligned that it's not that I'm uh, putting up priorities of some programs over the others. It's just we're trying to participate in as much as possible. And of course, over the past half a year, we've been all over Europe, all over, I don't know, Middle East, and got a lot of good connections, a lot of potential uh, investors, potential corporate partners. And it's been great to actually meet people face to face because before that, you couldn't only to do a Zoom meeting and then not be able to recognize a person if you meet them. So that was great to see everyone, especially the IAC, because everyone was there and it was cool.
0: Is it safe to say that your company started and grew out of the pandemic?
3: Yes, I'd say so, because absolutely.
0: That's one of the really cool things that we were talking about as a group, Chad and Andrew and I, as this pandemic started one, it was great to have a break from all the travel that we've done for the last 15 years. But the second part was there was all this fear at the beginning of what the pandemic was going to cause. And one of the things that I mentioned to, to Andrew and Chad and to one of our industry colleagues in uh, in Australia was that I couldn't wait to see, like, out of all of this hardship, what type of innovation was going to come out of it and what type of companies were going to be begun. And I think your your company and your efforts are an exact definition of what i was was thinking at the time and andrew and chad and i were thinking what happened is we see these great companies just kind of blossom and come out of all of this this hardship
3: yes absolutely agree because now we have the time we have the resources to perhaps bring those r&d projects to life and for me it just all collided at the same time because working from home in a huge corporation alone by yourself or trying to build something by yourself from scratch and getting experience in all the fields of entrepreneurship at the same time, that was huge for me. Because when I was doing just finance in a multinational, multi-billion-dollar corporation, you don't really feel like your work counts and you don't feel ownership of something that you did because it will be put in a pile of other papers. And of course, you did a great job. But now, I have to think about the business development. I have to think about the financial projections of how to do customer development, how to conduct interviews. And as a young, let's say, very young professional, I get experience. I think that was
0: directed at us, guys. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I get experience in all the fields that I would it would have taken me 10 years at Procter & Gamble to get or maybe not even get the experience I just got for the past year at mission space. So that's why it's great. I like where we're heading and it's good that you can have a conversation with people across the ocean via zoom like this.
2: It's true. The pandemic has really made a lot of people, you know, question where they sit in their careers and their lives. I think what, I mean, Bloomberg is what we're calling it. The great, great resignation or something to that effect, where people are just en masse changing jobs and changing directions as they realize what's important to them. And I think exactly what what you described is is what's happening to a lot of people.
0: Earlier, when we were kind of getting caught up before the call, we talked about the intensity of the the travel schedules than in this industry. You know, at at one point when you're an analyst, you spend a lot of time behind a screen and a desk, but as you move into more business development or executive roles, like what you've assumed over the last year, if someone else were coming into this industry and you were to try to give them a feel for what it's like to enter this industry, basically from zero to where you are now, like, what's that been like?
3: Ooh, (laughs) that's a tough question. Oh, so I think it took me a long time to actually get acquainted with the industry because I knew nothing about it. And my only advice to myself would be read more because you have all of those amazing newsletters, you have podcasts, you have interviews. And in order to be familiar with the industry, you have to read, read, read and read. Because at first I was like, what is the energy flux? But that was from physics. What is blue origin? What is Voyager space? And I was recently meeting, um, rocket lab guys. And I was asking, Oh, what do you guys do? What is rocket lab? And then after I Googled it, I felt so embarrassed because I was supposed to know what rocket lab is. So read, 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 and try to get involved into as many community events or webinars and, As much as possible, because that's how you get this knowledge build up if you're coming into the industry with zero, let's say, background experience in space industry.
0: Yeah, I think that that's something that we see in new space that you didn't really see prior to this new space revolution is that people that ended up in the space industry came through very traditional pathways, either through an astrophysics program, or they came through an aerospace engineering program or some sort of data analytics to get into this industry. But we're starting to see people that are coming in from the financial side, or they're coming in from basically any background that you can think of business and marketing, and they're all finding a place in this industry. So it's really interesting to see how you got here, how accepting the industry is. You know, when, When I entered the industry, it was absolutely not accepting of people from outside of the industry. And it was very cliquish. And if you're not one of us, then you're not one of us type of mentality. And it's great to see how, how that's been. Have you found that the industry has been pretty accepting of you?
3: <laughs> that's a good I one. wish
0: everyone could see her face right now. This is <laughs> audio, but I wish that you could have seen the the face that she just made. But But please go ahead.
3: Well, I I wish I could say that the industry was so accepting of me as this finance student, straight out of college student. And you cannot imagine how many people told me to stop saying that I'm just out of college. And to be honest, I did graduate just six months ago. So I'm still like I found admission space when I was in college and I don't. I wish I could say I really wish I could say that it's much more accepting, but maybe it's related to not necessarily my experience, but maybe my age and my background, because if I were to be. No, I don't think if I were to be an aerospace engineer, people would be more accepting into me being a CEO of the space tech startup, because still, how can you be a CEO at 22 years old? So. I think it's more related to my age and not (laughs) my finance experience, but it comes mostly from um, corporate guys and big corporations, like you name them. And not so much in the new space industry. I met with 10 amazing startups at the Space Founders Program. And those guys are all like me. They're new, they're ambitious, they're young. And there I felt like I was very comfortable, confident, accepted. It was amazing. See fellow founders who just started their companies and they're all you know supporting of each other. And sometimes when you're sitting in a meeting with a big company and they're looking at you and they're asking, I can see that they're asking this question, what is this young girl doing in a leadership position in the company who's targeting, let's say, potentially what could be of national security and national priority hazard problems? and they're sitting there asking this question and i can see it in their eyes that they're asking the question and there's nothing unfortunately i can do and even recently one of the advices was to hire someone from the us in a more experienced position to make mission space into a business and that was a little unfortunate and disappointing to hear but haters gonna hate you know whatever I feel
1: like that's got to light a fire under you as well and just be <laughs> even more excited and prove them all wrong yeah, I
2: think it's one of those things that's cross industry. I don't think it's unique to to space by any means. It's, I think people don't realize or they they don't appreciate having been in, in a startup that you need to have outside influence and outside opinions to break the mold, break the rules, and come up with something new. But with that said, a bit of experience to help kind of guide you through some of the stumbling blocks that. People have stumbled on before is also always helpful. So I think there's always two sides to the coin. But I was going to say I think Clint's experience is no different. You know, all, all of our experiences we've we've run into this someplace at, at some point. And uh, yeah, you just push through and and you learn as you go. And yeah, sure you you make the same mistakes somebody else has made, but you also break that mold and and you do it different. So that's, that's what makes it exciting. Exactly, that's what makes it exciting.
0: Those people that said that to you were probably sitting in the same seat 20 years ago. And exactly. you started an entire company <laughs> yeah. in that yeah. time. And you're probably going to get this thing further venture funded. You're probably going to get this thing successful. And I guess you can call them from your boat whenever uh, whenever this thing really <laughs> takes off for you. Space yacht.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Space yacht. Space <I> like <laughs> yacht on the way to the moon. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think that what we're seeing take place in this industry, where we have entrepreneurs and visionaries building these types of businesses, are really what's pushing the envelope. And one thing I can tell you for sure companies like yours, other companies in the space industry as well, that have begun from very humble beginnings, you may still get that pushback from industry players that have been there for 50 years. However, what I will say, We definitely see the effects of the push of companies like yours pushing into this industry, making things faster, making them more affordably, and pushing into government contracts is definitely putting the pressure on these other organizations to get better rather than just protect what they've built for the last half century.
3: Agreed. A hundred percent. Yes.
0: By the way, engineering also cuts out these awkward pauses.
3: (laughs)
2: Clint has a lot of them. Don't Lots of awkward it. pauses. Yeah, a lot they of...
0: make us sound good. Maybe
1: it's we good leave engineers. these in because it just adds flavor to it. <laughs> <laughs> they see who the three of us really are.
0: <laughs> so what's next for you, Ksenia? You've got this business going. You've started to get into these cohorts and these accelerators. What comes next that's part of the launching pad for you?
3: Finally, we are almost done with all of our programs, so this month we're just finishing up all of them. We're going to have our investor demo days, showcases. We closed half of our round already, so it looks very promising to finish our fundraising by the first quarter of 2022. Then just this month, we booked our orbit demonstration mission for next year. It will happen in the third quarter of 2022. And our engineering team will be conducting this tests of the payload integration into the satellite, everything that's needed. I will relax a little bit.
0: <laughs> oh, <No>, you won't. <laughs> I think we better Just cut keep that thinking one out you of well, the yeah. way. Your <laughs> yeah. investors hear that they're not throwing any money your way. No relaxing.
3: Just a little bit. You know, I have my small five day vacation skiing in Bulgaria. So, this is as much as I can enjoy on a non-existent CEO of a new space (laughs) company salary. So because you're on boss, you have to choose uh, based on your resources. And yes, we're going to build the API platform. It will be up and running and we'll offer it to the public. It will be a huge launch, I think in the middle of next year and really trying to protect a society from solar storms.
0: (laughs) I see we're getting close to the end of our time, but I've got one really important question that we always like to to ask about the exciting things happening in the industry as well as what advice you would give to other entrepreneurs like yourself so let's let's start with the first one what's the most exciting thing that you see happening in the industry today
3: well recently I read the news about the three let's say conglomerates winning the contracts for building different international space stations commercially and I like the the fact that everything is now kind of switching to the commercial aspect and a lot of that gives a lot of opportunities to other people like me to join this particular industry because before everything was built and operated and done by the governments and now You can create a company that will do just space weather or a company that will be focused on space traffic management. And those companies bring a lot of new jobs, a lot of opportunities, a lot of experiences for young people, and not just for young people, but for professionals who have so many years of this background knowledge and they can now implement it in a more agile format. I think the space industry is going through the same revolution, the IT industry, when a while ago so we need more business people into the space industry to make this a really long term fast growing stable revenue generating industry that will you will not have to convince taxpayers why governments are spending money on space missions rather than let's say military operations because in Latvia we're still struggling with that it's they're not really investing into space not a lot of Programs are being done because how can you convince those taxpayers that their money will go into those aspirational entrepreneurs who are doing, for sending things to space? So I absolutely love the transition. I like that I can find a place for myself having no connection to space at all, being able to be in a leadership position in space companies, something.
0: And what do you see as, like, if you could replay the entire f- first year and a half of being a space startup, if you could go back and tell yourself, do this differently or do this instead, what advice would you give yourself to do if you had a chance to to start again?
3: I'd say I like that I learned a lot from the mistakes that we made. I think the first year was just exploring the industry and trying to see where we could fit in. But I would say focus on one thing at a time. Because at the beginning, we try to push in every single direction or space weather is causing some, I don't know, the geomagnetic storms are causing energy sector geomagnetically induced currents in the power grids. Maybe we should target them. Or what about the polar routes and the radiation at high altitudes? Maybe this. Oh, how about fundraising? Or, oh, now we need to get a letter of intent from these guys. And you're just all over the place and trying to build a strategy first and a plan and work your way slowly through that plan would be very helpful for me a year ago, because now since we have finalized our go-to-market strategy, we chose only one sector to target. I can explain to the investors why this is valuable and just trying to really take one step at a time would be super helpful.
2: (laughs) There's something to be said about uh, focus, but In sales, we call that uh, throwing spaghetti at a wall. And sometimes you just got to do it to see what sticks. (laughs) Sanya, it's been so wonderful having you on the show today. I mean, this has been great. You know, we're excited to see what Mission Spaces is going to do. We're excited to get weather forecasts for the moon and looking forward to to hearing more about uh, what you guys do next.
3: Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure and it was great to catch up.
0: Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks, Ksenia. We'll see you uh, somewhere around the world. So what a cool guest. That was awesome having Ksenia on.
2: Anything to get better weather is good in my books.
0: Not a lot of people have been addressing space weather in the space industry. I mean, this is something that could be potentially super important, not just for what's happening in space, but also on the ground. You know, she was talking about that event in Canada, I think Montreal.
2: Yeah, it was out east. I mean, it hit um, the the Quebec power grid.
0: So do you know anything about that? Like, I, we didn't go into a ton of detail on that, but what kind of things happened?
2: I think as she said, it, it knocked out a transformer that basically took down the grid of a, a huge area in the middle of winter. And it was rough. It took them a while to get it back online. And, and in the meantime, people were freezing. So Timing wasn't great, but when is the timing for any disaster great? And I think you hit it. I think space weather is something that we need to to be investing more into, especially in new space where we're using more and more off the shelf -er or consumer technology in space that is not radiation hardened. It becomes more and more of an important issue.
1: Yeah. And how reliant we are on those sensors
0: for our day-to-day lives. Yeah. And she was saying that was, I think that was in the eighties. Is that right? I'm asking you, Andrew, because you're Canadian. You should know this.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, part, it's part of our education program. It's, it's you know, sixth grade uh, Canadian history.
0: Well, in, in Texas, they get like six years of Texas history and one year of American history and half a semester of world history.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One week of world history. No, I, I think it was early 90s, somewhere around there. But I mean, two decades ago or, or so. Yeah.
0: But imagine what that would be like today. I think I read on that event that it was hundreds of millions of dollars at that time in economic losses, probably in the billion dollar range today, but things weren't connected like they are today. Like everything is interconnected today.
2: Internet goes down in this house for 30 minutes and chaos. And my kids are... You've got are kids. All, yeah. Oh my <laughs> God. They're, they're eight eight months and almost three years old. So yeah, if you got teenagers, wow. Yeah.
0: Dad, dad, the internet, fix the internet. Yeah, I know how that goes. The internet's down. <laughs> yeah. One bout of space weather and, and like I can handle a lot of things, but we can't handle the internet being down in the house.
2: Nope. Definitely not.
0: But yeah. I think, I think mission space Cassinia, and team are they're, they're working on a problem that probably hasn't had enough attention. We've been lucky that we haven't had an event that knocked out entire grids since the eighties. And I think as we continue to look and go further and
1: further out to the moon and beyond, I mean, it's absolutely needed. It's amazing to see. We talk with a lot of founders and and people coming up in the new space. But another just you know extremely bright, ambitious young person that's taking this dream and and running with it,
2: taking a problem and going to solve it. It is exciting, super super exciting.
0: I think as we see these types of things evolve and new ideas coming in, you know, I think one of the things that really caught my attention as she was talking about her business and how it started and where they came from that i keyed in on a little bit in the the episode was the fact that this business was born of the pandemic and i remember when we were talking to one of our our agriculture connections throughout the industry that also is highly connected into to space you know we were talking about how this pandemic may change the face of technology because so many people, whether they resign or whether they lose their position, highly talented people that had nothing to do with their job performance may have lost their position, but they're hardworking entrepreneurial people that have gone out and started business in the middle of this pandemic. You know, I think that's one of the most exciting things is as we look out five years from now and 10 years from now, seeing what businesses were born out of this hardship in the pandemic.
2: Yeah, I think it, it, it speaks to people just asking the simple question of what do they want to do when they grow up and is putting food on the table, paying for the house and all that enough anymore. I think what we've seen is is just accelerated with the pandemic in terms of fundamentally, you know, what does it take to to make people happy and satisfy their, their dreams and desires to contribute.
0: You know, and I'm starting to see a trend as we've talked to A few weeks ago, a ways from Pixel, and as we've talked, spoken with Cassinia and other entrepreneurs from this industry, you know, when we spoke with Mo from Payload, one of the things we continuously hear is that the industry is changing in a way that people from outside the industry can enter if they're eager to learn and they make the effort. The single biggest advice that I think we've heard from founders all across this industry is just do it, just get started and go make it happen. I think it's a very accepting community and people will help you through some of the hurdles. Yep. It's it's an industry that wants to see others in the industry win and succeed. So hopefully everyone on the the listening side of this episode um, has heard some great things from Cassinia and from other founders that have been on here before, but we're excited about this episode, the next episodes, and all the founders that are going to join us uh, in the future. So Have a great week. Looking forward to the the holidays. If this airs after the holidays, hope you had a great holiday and uh, we'll see you in the next episode.
1: See y'all. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in the future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where New Space speaks.